Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Here we go again. Ontario is back into a full-fledged lockdown. Well, sort of. The big box stores are open. Small businesses once again take it on the chin. Our hospitals are filling up too quickly, and we still have a fairly small percentage of our population that's actually received the vaccine. Those stories, plus some fresh polling on Ontario's four major political parties and where they stand this week. It's Tuesday, April 6, 2021, so let's get to it. We hope our podcast listeners had a happy Easter holiday weekend, or at least as happy as possible considering the circumstances. Before the weekend, the Ontario government announced some new modeling numbers which are not encouraging. And so here come the restrictions once again. JMM, how's about you telling us where things are at this week? It makes for some pretty grim reading. Uh, basically, the, the so-called variants of concern, these uh, mutations of COVID-19 that are both more infectious and more likely to put people in hospital, uh, are now the dominant form of COVID in the province and still growing quickly. Uh, that is driving an increase in case numbers. Uh, we have reported about 3,000 new cases a day over the last several days. Uh, and uh, they are also filling up ICU beds uh, very quickly. Uh, our intensive care units never really emptied out from the second wave, so the third wave is hitting them particularly hard, and they didn't really have a lot of room to spare. And so over the last week, we've seen patients uh, in overloaded GTA hospitals uh, that have been moved to places with spare capacity. And so that has involved you know, ambulances going up and down the 401, trying to find whatever free ICU bed they can. According to the University of Toronto's Edelstein Brown, uh, who presented all of this on Thursday morning, uh, one family had all three members sick with COVID and sent to three different hospitals. Um, I think I'm running out of different ways to say that this is a really uh, dangerous and uh, frightening time in the pandemic because we have said this many times before, but it is still true today. I think you're not the only one finding or having difficulty finding new ways to say this, as we will hear in our quotes of the week later, because I've got a little exchange between you and Dr. Brown from his briefing last week, and we're going to play that later. So stay tuned for that, everybody. Now, we know because of this pandemic that these are not normal times, but the Ontario Liberals found that out in rather dramatic fashion recently when they tried to mount a campaign event in Waterloo's Chesapeake Park. What was the problem? Well, the problem was no one showed up, and I mean no one. The leader, Stephen Del Duca, showed up to make a speech. His videographer shot it, and one reporter heard it, and that was it. Now, how much do we read into that? Uh, I, I believe you're old enough to remember the reference, uh, suppose they held a war and nobody came. Uh, that was a slogan from the, the anti-war protests of the 1960s and 70s. Um, you really, really don't want to be a politician holding a campaign rally and, and have nobody come. Uh, you know, these are obviously unusual circumstances. And, you know, this isn't about, you know, busting Stephen Del Duca's chops for what I guess is kind of embarrassing. But, you know, I actually expect that by August, the um, the traditional summertime political barbecue circuit will actually be reasonably lively. Uh, but right now, uh, you know, that's obviously an event that 
uh, neither Stephen Del Duca nor his team want to repeat. <laughs> well, you got to feel in some respects a bit sorry for the guy because for the whole previous year, he's been basically doing all his work as leader online. Remember, he doesn't have a seat in the legislature, so he has been doing day-long Zoom feeds over and over and over all over the province with different people. This was actually, I think the, the, this past couple of weeks are the first time that that he's actually wanted to get out of his living room and, or I think it's actually his dining room. It's on his dining room table that he does all this. This is the first time he's gotten out and actually tried to go to different parts of the province and wave the flag. And, um, you know, people are, I, I guess, a mixture of either... Uh, too afraid to be out at events in public or not interested enough in provincial politics uh, at a time like this. So there you go. Um, it's tough It's tough sledding if you're the leader of the third party some days. <laughs> Better luck next time. <laughs> yeah. Well, if people want to find out more about this, we've put a link to a column by Jeffrey Stevens. Jeffrey Stevens, one of the great longtime Queens Park observers. He's got the lowdown in our show notes, so you can go look for that there. Now, let's dovetail from that story to a look at the relative popularity of all the four major political parties in Ontario. We don't, JMM, as a general rule, see as much polling at the provincial level as we do for the national scene. But as of this week, we now have three relatively recent polls from three different polling companies, giving us a sense of the state of play at Queen's Park. We will not drown our listeners in numbers here. Suffice to say... Doug Ford's progressive conservatives are in first place in all three polls with either a comfortable or actually largish lead. One poll has the NDP in second place and the Liberals in third. Another poll has that reversed, that being the Liberals in second and the NDP in third. The Greens are in fourth place in all three polls. These polls come from Leger, Campaign Research, and Abacus. Okay, with all that having been said, what tickles your fancy in these polls? You know, every time I post one of those polls to my social media, uh, and not just these three polls, but, you know, every poll that has preceded them for the last six months, I am flooded with people saying uh, basically that they don't get it. Uh, these are people who uh, they don't love Doug Ford, and they've got a, a laundry list of reasons why they think he doesn't deserve re-election. Uh, and, and, you know, insofar as, you know, political passions run hot, I get it. But I honestly don't think it's that hard to explain. You know, in my lifetime, there is a grand total of one time a party in Ontario didn't win some kind of re-election after their first uh, term, and that was Bob Ray's. Uh, voters really still haven't forgotten that they didn't love the Liberals by the end of 2018, and the progressive vote hasn't consolidated behind either Andrew Horvath or Stephen Del Duca as a potential replacement. So... That might change as we get closer to the election, and and I sort of expect it to. I I, I don't think these, uh, at least the numbers for the uh, Liberal and NDP, to be that stable, you know, a year from now. But on the surface, you know, as far as these headline numbers go, they don't really surprise me as of you know April of 2021. You know, as you were saying all that, I I sort of reminded myself that if you look out at every single province in the country which has faced an election over the past year. Uh, and I'm going to get these wrong. I know I shouldn't do this off the top of my head, but it's British Columbia, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, and Labrador. Uh, those three anyway. Uh, and, and of course, if you look, I believe as well. Saskatchewan as well. Very good. And of course, the federal government um, may or may not have an election coming up this year. And if you look in every single one of those cases, the incumbent government won. And of course, the Trudeau liberals are in first place federally right now. So that suggests that all of our unhappiness about COVID-19 notwithstanding, 
and our irritation that things are not going as well in terms of procurement or vaccine jabs as we'd like it to go, there apparently, John Michael, there apparently is a decent amount of understanding for those in power right now, uh, because all the parties that were in power a year ago uh, are still either in power or winning re-election or in first place in the polls today. Well, oh, so the one exception, I think, uh, and admittedly, I'm not as on top of Alberta polls as I should be, but Jason Kenney seems to be having a little bit of difficulty in, in Alberta. Uh, You're relative right. He's to, lower in the polls. That's yeah. true. But but <laughs> one out of 13 provinces or territories uh, that, that I can think of where uh, we're seeing a uh, anything other than a, 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 a real um, affinity for the incumbents. <laughs> right. Quite right. Now, of course, let's do a little you know, one level deeper dive on the polling that we've just been talking about, and we will learn some more things about the state of play. And I'm thinking, for example, there is a very large gender gap among the parties, how women vote, how men vote. Take us through that, if you would. Right. Uh, As we said, we're not going to drown people in numbers. So suffice it to say that uh, the Tories are walking away with the male vote in the province of Ontario, um, whereas uh, for women, the uh, vote is... A, a bit more divided. They they are more likely to vote NDP or Liberal. Um, if you are under 35, you are much, much more inclined to vote NDP. And if you are over 35, uh, you are more likely to vote uh, for the progressive conservatives. So real clear uh, age and uh, gender splits. I do wonder what these metrics tell the campaign teams of the four respective parties, uh, Conservatives, New Democrats, liberals and greens. Now, if you're a conservative, knowing the gender gap exists, do you just forget about the female vote and focus like crazy on getting men to come out and vote for you? Or do you say, as you just indicated, Stephen Harper did, we can bank on the male vote. Now let's get some policies in the window that can get us some female voters as well. Um, I'll tell you what, three, four, five decades ago, you'd have definitely done the latter. You would have tried to reach out to a broader coalition of support and you would not have been satisfied with merely getting your base out. Today, the parties are so identified with particular demographics that it has really turned into a contest about identifying your vote and getting it to show up on election day. I'm not sure that's better. No, I, I don't think it is at all. But I also don't think that the the people inside these campaigns love them love this dynamic either. Um, I think if you you know ask them, you know, could they would they like to go back to uh, an era where uh, somebody like Bill Davis to <laughs> invoke your favorite uh, uh, politician, uh, you know, could govern with you know through much of his career with like very large and stable majorities because he had the preponderance of public opinion on his side. Um, sorry, that was a lot of alliteration. Um, <laughs> the I, I think they would all love to get back to that kind of an era, if, if for no other reason than they would love to win elections by those kinds of margins. Um, but nobody knows how to get back there from here. You know, there's no uh, brightly marked exit, uh, you know, <laughs> to get off of this ride exit here, right? Um uh, you know, I mentioned Stephen Harper, and, and I do think that the provincial Tories are are trying to peel away marginal voters from the Liberals and the New Democrats where they can. Um, I'm thinking in particular of some of their policies towards unions and the building trades. You know, I, I don't think anybody's ever going to confuse the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario for a, you know, strong pro-organized labor stance. Uh, but 
they are definitely interested in the votes of some union members. And we're seeing that them appeal really directly to people in, in the building trades right now. Um, maybe that wins them some votes on the margins. Maybe it flips a seat or two for them. But I think this is all in the context of people, will, I think, will, will acknowledge that they're not going to win an election based on the kinds of changes that uh, these, these appeals make. As a journalist, you always like to think that maybe people read your stories or watch your interviews, and that helps inform their choices on Election Day. But this year has been a strange one to be a journalist. We basically never see the people we're supposed to cover. Everything is done over the phone now. Reporters are essentially prohibited from being in the same venue as the politicians making the announcements. Is it affecting the stories that get covered or how they get covered? Well, let's find out from Sabrina Nanji. She's a freelance Queen's Park reporter, and she joins us now from the provincial capital. And Sabrina, I hope this call finds you doing as well as possible under the circumstances. I think that's the way we always ask how you're doing these days. Yeah, I think that's the new pandemic fine, right? Um, I, I don't know if it's uh, as convincing, but no, I'm doing well. I'm happy to be joining you guys virtually. So thank you so much. Good stuff. Let's start with this. Uh, how have you found trying to cover Queen's Park during the coronavirus pandemic when you can't be in the same place as any of the people you're covering? Hmm. It's It's been a challenge, absolutely. I think one of the main things that we've lost is in-person scrums, being able to uh, ask questions to the premier and, and the ministers, uh, questions in person and to their face. Um, I know that uh, we have the daily, near daily, we don't get them as much anymore, uh, press conferences from the premier. Um, and this is being done by teleconference now. And I think one of the major things that we've lost is the rhythm of a scrum. Um, so how this would typically go is, you know, I would ask a question of the premier or, or the, the health minister say, and they they start their answer. Maybe they, they get into talking points a bit. So, you know, uh, maybe John Michael jumps in with a follow-up and there's a bit of a back and forth and that's how we get the truth out. And that's how we get the answer. Um, the teleconference, it's fits and starts, you know, it's not even organically how you'd have a conversation, you ask a question, there's a big long, long answer. And then if you don't really get what you need, you have to weigh whether you're going to press and, and ask it in a different way, or if you move on to a different subject. So it's a bit of a, a different dance of, of what's going on right now. I think that's one thing that I've, I've missed the most. You mentioned the um the premier's teleconferences there. And back in the before times, we very rarely got the premier. I'm not even sure I remember getting the premier twice in one week uh, back before the pandemic. Uh, maybe we would get once in a week and often less than that. Um, and now we, you know, it's, it's it's no longer daily, like you said, but it is multiple times a week often. But of course, there's also the, all the difficulties of the teleconference that you mentioned. I mean, are these still helpful, do you think? I, I mean, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, I think. You're right. You know, before the pandemic hit, we would scrum the premier maybe once a month or every couple of months. Um, I mean, I think it was a bit of a more adversarial relationship. The premier himself called us the unofficial official opposition, and now he's thanking us for getting this important pandemic messaging out to the public. But... Um, you know, at least he's out there uh, answering or, 
you know, we, I guess we could argue on the quality of these answers, but he's up there taking questions um, more regularly, uh, I think. And so uh, you got to you got to take what you can get, I think, at, sometimes. But um yeah, I, I'm not mad that he's out there very, very often, even though um, the teleconference isn't really ideal, uh, an ideal way to get the truth. Sabrina, the people listening to this right now may not appreciate how important it is to getting information that's accurate and out there. They may not appreciate how important it is that the journalists themselves control that process, as in, we decide who asks the question the premier's office should not be deciding who asks the question because obviously they have the potential to favor whom they like and shut out whom they don't like. How is that all working itself out during this pandemic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, well, we it's it's the at the teleconference line, the premier's office is in charge of that. So they're the ones, um, you know, p- picking uh, who, who gets to ask the questions, you know, how many questions there are and that type of thing. And we are seeing that, you know, these have been, tightly controlled. Um, but, uh, you know, the press gallery, and I'm actually a member of the executive that that we have been pushing and, uh, you know, behind the scenes for a more uh, fair and equitable system. And we have seen uh, some movement in that, but it's, it's not perfect. And um, we have actually now that uh, we've gotten sort of used to uh, and understand more of like which which public health measures should be in place. So we've been able to sort of bring that to Queens Park um, and uh, post question period scrums. So this is just after question period. You know, whichever minister is in a more loose format than the teleconference line, they can come down to the media studio at Queens Park, and we can have some reporters there physically. It's all distance. Everyone's wearing masks, um, and that's a bit of a looser format. But we still have the teleconference line um, available, and that one is like controlled by the press gallery. So it's you know first come first served um, accredited journalists. You do the usual star one, and you get to ask your question. Um, I will say that bringing that back has has been really helpful. Um, to, to get a minister, you know, the health minister or the long-term care minister, people that we can um, uh, ask our questions more in a more open forum, I think has really helped. Um, I know that for me personally, um, when I wasn't getting questions on the premier's teleconference line, you know, I, I spoke up about it to my gallery colleagues. Um, they, I, I wasn't the only one experiencing this. So we ended up, you know, writing a formal letter to the premier's office. And I think it was a couple of days after that, that, that I got the question. Um, another tactic was just tweeting out the questions I would have asked. So I think, you know, drawing the attention to it has been helping a little bit, but it's, um, you know, it's it's not ideal. And then the other week we had a former conservative candidate who runs the Punjabi Post ask a question, um, which uh, the premier and his office took a lot of flack for, especially from opposition parties who said, you know, this is crossing the line into a partisan campaign appeal for votes, uh, which probably didn't really help much with the optics when the premier sort of made that plea after the question. Um, and, I, and, and even on that, you know, it's really rare for premiers to uh, so overtly woo voters um, so far out from the next scheduled election more than a year away. So it, it does stand out and make you sit up. But I think from this premier, Doug Ford in particular, it's not wholly surprising. You know, he's said himself, he's always in campaign mode. He's just going from one to the next. And we've also seen several occasions where they're using uh, their pandemic response in their 
fundraising email blasts that go to supporters or people who might donate to the PC party. So I, I think it is um, concerning, maybe not so surprising, but I think for us reporters, it's important to just lay it all out there so that people can make informed opinions and decisions. At the same time as and you rightly point out the um, former conservative uh, candidate who who was given a, a question during the press conference, I mean, at the same time as we've seen that, uh, certainly uh, some of our uh, fellow members of the press gallery have also been very vocal uh, in, in alleging that uh, they think they're being uh, frozen out from these teleconferences. And I'm thinking uh, in particular of our, our colleague, Travis Danraj, who uh, has you know, not gotten very many questions to the premier uh, over the last few months. And I mean, do you see those as uh, a linked problem? And, and is this um, is this affecting the integrity of the journalism that comes out of Queen's Park? I mean, I think that, you know, since the beginning of time, governments have, uh, you know, so-called frozen out reporters that they don't like. Um, I don't think that's unique to a pandemic or this government, but I think maybe it's just more visible. And um, yeah, when you wait on hold for, you know, two hours and you don't get a question, that is really frustrating. And I think, you know, to call it out is maybe... Um, is maybe a way to sort of help. But again, like I said, it is just a double-edged sword. Like we, we don't, there's been some really um, wild suggestions on how to address this. You know, do we boycott um, the premier's pressers or uh, do we start pooling questions? Those, those didn't pan out. But um, I think one other thing that's really missed is that you can't really, because we're not there physically, um, you can't really grab a minister or, you know, even an opposition politician to get a one-on-one -on -one about a story that you're working on. Um, we, in the before times, you know, after question period, you get the minister who speaks to the big news of the day up to scrum. And so that would be like health or maybe the finance minister. But if you want to, if you're working on something about, you know, the revamping of the blue box recycling program, you might be able to pull aside the environment minister and, and get something a little more in depth. I think that's really another thing that's also been missed. I know that was that was starting to go away a bit more with the, the PCs as well. Um, but I think that's uh, that's one thing that we don't have a lot of, you know, missing out being at Queens Park. Sabrina, I want to ask a follow up on this Travis Danreg situation, because it's one thing for journalists to sort of complain either privately or amongst themselves behind the scenes about the way the premier's office is handling uh, the allocation of questions. It is really another thing, as Travis did, and I'm not criticizing him for it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm impressed at his courage, actually. Um, he tweeted it. He went right out there and he said, I am out of here. I've had enough of this. This is not working anymore. This is ridiculous about how I'm never getting to ask a question. And it seems that only the the uh, the people who are among the favored few, you know, uh, get called on by the premier's office. Since he went public with that tweet and was very critical on the record about it, do you know whether or not there has been any discussion or any change of approach in the premier's office accordingly? Um, I'm not sure how much I can speak to the, what's going on in the premier's office. Um, I'd, I hadn't heard Travis since since then ask a question, but um, I mean, I, I can relate to him, right? Uh, there were some times where I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to bother uh, calling in because I never get called on anyway. And it's not a good feeling to feel like you need to give up or try something else. Um, Travis also called out uh, the executive, which I'm a part of. And I think um, what he 
didn't mention was what's going on behind the scenes. So I know that there has been discussions between the gallery executive and the premier's office about this. And it happened, you know, just before days before um, Travis put, put that out there that we had sent a formal letter, you know, laying out the concerns. Um, and it, this is one of many letters that the premier's office has gotten. So at the end of the day, it's, it's really up to the premier's office. Um, they're the ones in control. They're the ones in charge and the the gallery and executive is having to kind of be a bit more um, creative in, in uh, you know, for their formal complaints and um, point, like pointing out to the premier's office, this isn't okay. And, and I can understand when sometimes they do want to uh, have uh, the, the regional media ask, ask questions, because I know that the, the Queens Park Gallery, we, um, we we would we would ask every every opportunity that we can get and so sometimes you know there might not be enough time for a regional reporter to get their question in about a specific thing that's happening in that riding um i think that's one one thing that po has controlled it in in a good way um i do i do feel what travis is saying but i know that there's also a lot a lot of other um accredited journalists who haven't gotten questions as as often as as he has as well, but I completely understand his his frustration. And um, I mean, those those formal letters have been going out. I know that they've been small wins, but they we have gotten our small victories. And I think that it's uh, you've got to kind of uh, be a bit more co cooperative. I think that the premier's office understands that. Um, it's it's bad optics on them too. I don't think the public is you know. Um, they can't trick the public in, into, you know, just having the the same questions, like the same people. I don't think the public's going to fall for something like that. So I think, um, you know, taking questions from folks, uh, different folks, different people choosing on them, that's, um, that's what's going to make it, uh, that, that's how you get the better optics of it, I think, too. I think now, um, I don't know if we will, if Travis is trying still or not, but I think, um, it's it's definitely a frustrating experience, and he's not the only one that's felt that frustration in the gallery. You've mentioned the executive a few times here, and I think probably worth spelling out uh, for our, our listeners that you know the the Queens Park Press Gallery is actually a a body uh, in the Legislative Assembly. All of the journalists who report on Queens Park uh, regularly are members. Steve and I are both members, and we elect. Uh, members as the sort of the leaders of the press gallery. And so at the moment, the president of the Queens Park Press Gallery is uh, Colin DeMello. And there are, um, uh, actually, I forget what the technical title is, is deputies or vice presidents? I forget. Vice president. Right. Yeah, um, and, yeah so there's uh, one for like print, one for broadcast. Um, I'm the secretary, so I take the minutes and things right. like that. But yeah, it's, it's volunteer. And um, I think you know, your mandate essentially being on the executive is to fight for uh, your colleagues and, you know, access and transparency from the, the powers that be. And, you know, <laughs> while we're talking about um, uh, the the very inside gossip of, of Queen's Park, I guess we might as well talk about uh, the story from uh, geez, a, a week or two ago now. Um, we learned that the Toronto Sun's Brian Lilly is in a relationship with uh, Premier Doug Ford's Director of Media Relations, uh, Ivana Yelich. Um, <laughs> this poses some pretty ethical, uh, some pretty obvious ethical problems. Um, what uh, what struck you about that revelation? <laughs> um, I, I would say generally, uh, you know, it's not really 
surprising to to think that relationships can be formed in in these ways, you know, media, political people, political people, and stakeholders. Um, we're all we're all uh, working long hours. We all spend a lot of time together. You know, I mean, I count a lot of my close friends, even in government, opposition, and they are absolutely partisan. Um, and I still think, you know, we I can do my job um, objectively. And I think. Um, they must have, you know, some like, like most, most folks in these types of personal relationships, you know, they might have boundaries about what you can and can't talk about. Um, you know, I had had a close friend that worked for Tim Hudak and when we would chat, you know, about the usual stuff, you know, how's your day? And then maybe they would, you know, get to a big announcement they were prepping for, but wasn't at liberty to, to discuss. So you say, oh, sorry, Sabrina, like, let's talk about something else. And then you just move on. And, and that's how you kind of maintain things. I think the, the key to um, the the optics and ethical questions of it is really disclosure. And, you know, whether that's disclosure to your bosses or the public, I think the, the onus is on a reporter. And then it's really up to the, the public to decide, you know, um, how, what they think about that. Well, that's the point. You can't stop people from falling in love, but you can certainly urge people to be upfront about uh, people with whom they're in a relationship. And the the questions are, related to that, whether or not the parties involved here have really been as public and disclosed appropriately uh, their relationship for their superiors and the public to know about, and and frankly, whether there are any other uh, relationships like this going on out there that pose similar uh, difficulties. It's hard to imagine that in a province of 14.7 million people uh, where you've got uh, I don't know what, 60,000 people working in the public service and, uh, you know, hundreds, if not thousands more journalists. It's hard to imagine that these two are the only ones involved in this kind of a, a situation. So anyway, we, we, we certainly leave that out there for people to, to think about. But Sabrina, I guess, the, I mean, here's the main point about all of what we're talking about here today. This is not, we haven't had you on so that we can moan about how difficult our jobs are. That is hardly the point. The point is that because of the new rules under COVID, one wonders whether there are stories that are not getting covered. One wonders if there are answers we're not getting. We're, I mean, we're the proxy for the listener, for the, for the viewer, for the reader. And, you know, is it, in your view, are we missing out on stuff in doing our job for the public because of the nature of how we have to cover things during the course of a pandemic? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the teleconferences, they're really not um, ideal. And they do sort of allow um, the minister of the day or whoever's up at the mic to sort of give these long um, talking points filled answers. And that's really, um, you know, that's how you lose out on on getting the truth or it's a, it's a little trickier. I think um, we've had to adapt, but I don't know if we'll ever get those big crowded scrums where you see a minister, you know, sardined in a group of reporters with microphones pressed up against their nose. You know, um, I, I don't know if we'll ever get that back, you know, even after everyone's vaccinated and everything. Um, but I, I do think that it's the style of the teleconference that's really not ideal. And also, you know, the ability to be there in person um, and to maybe you run into somebody in the in the basement, you know, grabbing a coffee in the cafeteria, you can ask a couple of questions or you'll get a tidbit um, and can can run with that. I think um, there's 
it's going to have to be a lot of uh, getting creative. You know, I think even now we've been hearing um, reporters even calling out um, the premier sometimes when he doesn't give uh, a, a straight answer to a fairly straightforward question. Um, but it, you kind of have to decide whether you're going to press on that in just one follow-up or, or move on and try and cover something else. I think um, hopefully we'll start to see more of, you know, the option of asking in-person questions to the premier. Um, our trusted camera guy, Jamie Tumulty, he has sometimes, you know, when he's out with the premier on photo ops, he's been able to, you know, uh, yell questions at him because he's going to at least try. Um, and sometimes we have gotten, you know, things that we can follow up on or need to clarify, you know, a bit of news. So it's a struggle, but I think people are trying, are, are getting, you know, a bit more creative and adapting. And um, I'm, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad that we are getting the premier out there and the ability to ask the questions. Um, that's something I should say. Well, Sabrina, we really did uh, want to pull the curtain back a little bit and find out a little bit more on behalf of our listeners as to how this all works. And we're grateful that you could spend some time with John Michael and me today to do just that. So thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And hopefully we'll be in the scrums together soon. Amen to that. That was Sabrina Nanji, freelance Queens Park reporter. And we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Help make this little podcast a little bit better. For example, some of you said you enjoy the banter between John Michael and me, but you'd also like to hear some guests from time to time as well. So we did that today. Give us other good advice, and we will happily take it. We are entirely open to suggestion. <laughs> and you can shoot us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. Right on. Okay, here comes my quote of the week. This is from the Public Health Table's top expert, Dr. Staney Brown. At his briefing of the new modeling numbers, it's last April 1st when this happened, but this is clearly no April Fool's joke. My estimable co-host asked a wonderful question, and folks, listen carefully here. Listen to Dr. Brown's answer. In particular, listen for the pause and then the deep exhale before he actually opens his mouth to answer the question. If you're a journalist, that is a great sign because it means the subject is not giving you a bunch of talking points or spin. He is genuinely thinking hard about what to say. Staney Brown, take it away. Your first question comes from John McGrath with TVO. Please go ahead. Uh, Dr. Brown, you sat there six weeks ago and warned us all that this was coming if uh, policy measures weren't taken. They weren't taken, and now we're here. Um, you've been relatively stoic in these briefings, but I'm wondering how you feel today. Are you frustrated? Are you angry about this outcome? No. I'm just hopeful that if the goal is to reduce the infection and the impact of this disease, that the measures we take are strong enough uh, to make sure that we can get the disease under control, we can protect our hospitals, uh, and we can uh, get back uh, to uh, a normal life as quickly as possible. That's Dr. Adelstein Brown in response to John Michael McGrath at last Thursday's public health briefing. Well done, JMM. 
Thank you for that, Steve. I'm mildly embarrassed, but you know, can I just take a second and say what we've talked a bit about the dynamics of these teleconferences that we call into, and so I wasn't watching the TV when I wasn't watching a video feed when I asked that question, and so he waited so long to answer. If he'd waited another half a second, I was actually going to jump in and ask if I was still on the line. I was kind of confused about that, like whether I'd been dropped or not. I'm so glad you didn't and were patient and just let the silence breathe because it really did create a memorable and dramatic moment. And it really did sum up. I mean, that moment where he said nothing, John Michael, it summed up the whole conundrum of the past several weeks is that it seems that there's a great debate right now about what we're doing, what we're not doing, whether it's working, whether it's not working. And you got all that summed up in that great exhale and that pause. So good for you for resisting the temptation to jump in. One of the uh, few lessons that really stuck in my brain from journalism school is let the silences hang. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, my quote of the week is from Monday when uh, Toronto's medical officer of health, Dr. Eileen Davila, was asked about the need for uh, both more vaccines and for social supports for people who get sick, uh, including paid sick leave. And as I see it, this is not an either or thing. It's actually a both and. We need both the protections for workers uh, for paid sick leave so that they can take the right action when they feel unwell without having to worry for their family's welfare. And of course, we need vaccine. I think the important part about vaccine that we all need to understand is that it is an absolutely important strategy, but it is one that has its greatest effects. It has its fulsome benefit weeks down the road. So the ability to stay home from work when you're sick is a today strategy. Vaccine is a strategy that protects better for tomorrow. That's Dr. Eileen Davila speaking in Toronto on Monday. And that was episode 106 of the On Poly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor and Matthew O'Meara this week, who also provided, of course, his regular editing wizardry as well. Production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. 